Welcome to the sixth of the Marshall Graham interviews. I'm going to play you back an interview that I recorded with professional horse player Sean Borman. Sean is based in Lexington, Kentucky, and you often hear him on the In the Money Media Network on the pro player roundtables that Pete tends to put together before big race days. He occasionally drops in for other cards, especially uh, at his home track at Keeneland. More recently, he's been playing a lot of Hong Kong. Uh, we talked just an hour on handicapping, an evergreen conversation on handicapping. Sean makes his own speed figures. He's a big proponent of late pace. We'll talk about trip handicapping, track biases, uh, odds movements, uh, and all sorts of topics. So again, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Once again, we're sponsored by Millridge Farm. Whether you want to sign your yearling, board your broodmare, they have two young stallions, Oscar Performance and Aloha West. Aloha West covering his first mares this upcoming spring. Please check them out. I've got Sean Borman, professional uh, handicapper with me. And, and Sean, tell me how you got interested in uh, uh, thoroughbred racing. Well, um, you know, first I got, I got interested in gambling first. And, and then I, I guess I got interested in racing because growing up in Lexington, it was, it was available and it was legal and it was legal faster than sports betting was going to be legal. And, and it was legal faster than poker was going to be legal. So that was the, the main draw. I could go out to Keeneland and make a legal bet before I could go to the casinos or before I could go to, you know, wherever um, and not have to deal with a bookie and, and, and all that stuff. So it, it was really, it was really the, the legality of it and the ease of ease of use that, that, that first got me interested in it. And then once I got to the racetrack, I sort of fell in love with the, the sport and the handicapping side of it. And, and that's where I developed the, the thrill and, and the passion for handicapping and then started buying every handicapping book I could get my hands on. And, and that's sort of where it, that's where it all began there. So was the starting point like an interest in sports betting or was it cards before you got into the horse racing? Um, it was, it was, I guess my, I mean, technically I think it was pitching quarters on the, on the wall <laughs> in PE three class in high school, I guess was the first uh, gambling juices, but it was really sports betting. Um, I started making, and I found some, some rinky dink book that was like, how to make your own line for baseball games. And I love baseball. Um, so I started, you know, tinkering with that. And then, you know, I found, you know, this was back when you could very easily quote, borrow your parents' credit card and, and find a website based somewhere in the world and, and bet some sports. So I, you know, I sort of bet in like playoff hockey games, not knowing any, anything about hockey, but, um, you know, I started making lines for football games, you know, after reading some stuff and it just sort of blossomed from there. Um, but it was always, you know, I would find books to read or articles to read. Um, and, you know, I, I would just got very interested in, in finding ways to use box scores or, or data of some sort to, to figure out ways to make bets. So the horse racing thing was almost a coincidence. You're you're you were in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, but your parents you don't have relatives or in in racing at all. It's just here was a way to 
to do legal gambling uh, and go forward. Exactly. Total coincidence. I, I, I don't have the, the typical, my dad took me to the racetrack story. You know, it was just, it was there. You know, I, I went with a friend, you know, we skipped school when I was 16. That was my first trip to Keeneland. It wasn't a life, you know, I didn't grow up at the racetrack by any stretch. Um, you know, I, actually growing up when I was really young, Keeneland was just sort of a pain in the butt because it, it made traffic around the city worse on Saturday afternoons when we were trying to go to the UK football games in the fall and stuff like that. So it, it, I, I don't have the typical sort of racing racetrack story. I just sort of stumbled into it somehow. So what, uh, so you got interested in horse racing, started to learn more about horse racing. Was there an aha moment? Was there a moment where something really clicked? where you maybe learned something that made that, uh, you know, sort of changed uh, things? Yeah, I guess, you know, Steve Davidowitz's book, Betting Thoroughbreds, really sort of changed things for me because I thought it was very in-depth, but also very easy to understand. And a lot of the principles he outlined about track bias and, and trip handicapping and, you know, just some of that stuff made a lot of sense to me. And I thought that was a very good starting point for really anybody wanting to learn the handicapping process. And from there, I, you know, like I said, I read just about every book there was, but that, that one really started me down the path of, of really learning the handicapping craft. And I just started watching every, you know, it was also around the time when TVG first launched and I was able to watch, you know, races constantly so i just started watching races and, and all the time just all i would watch was races when i had any free time i just watched races and so, that really helped so when did you decide to sort of you know what was the impetus to sort of make the jump to do this sort of more as a career than a than a hobby um i you know i was a i probably completed my first two years at the university of kentucky and had really no idea what i wanted to major in I'd had some success gambling enough that I thought that it was possible to do for a living. And I've always had the mindset that if I could, you know, if, if one person can do something, I've always had the mindset I could do it eventually with enough hard work. Um, so I, I just determined that I could do it and I wasn't happy at UK. So I just decided I would take some time off and, and give it a try. And I, you know, eventually had enough success. I never went back. It, uh, it was a very hard process. I don't condone anybody to actually do it, especially now. Well, I know the I, game has changed a ton. When, so this, this is what, this is the early aughts when this, this is, uh, kind of probably 2002. So in that, that sort of, and again, the game has evolved a lot in the last 19 years. Um, in the first part of that, would, would your typical, what would your typical day be like? Like uh, in terms of, you know, uh, how many tracks were you betting? You know, how many would you study in the morning and then bet in the afternoon? Kind of what was your whole process? Um, I know that's changed over time, but uh, yeah, tell yes, me a little bit. It's changed that. a lot. I, you know, those first few years, I, I say that I, I did it, quote, for a living because I didn't have a job, but I was not a professional. I didn't go about things in a professional manner. I really had no idea what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I first, 
I first got interested in embedding Southern California, mainly because that, you know, I would, I would go to school and then I would get home 2.30 or 3 after class and California was just starting. And that's what I could bet on. So I focused on California. And so that's where my focus was. I would handicap in the morning and, and bet on California and not really knowing what I was doing. I would focus on pick threes and pick sixes because that's what they talked about all the time on TVG. Um, and they talked, you know, you could make a lot of money in those bets and that was very alluring. Um, I very quickly learned that it was very hard to hit those bets and you could lose a lot of money. So that was, that was a very hard lesson to learn. You can go broke very quick playing, <laughs> playing those super exotics, but I've, I've always been drawn to the idea of, of betting, you know, as, as our friend Paul Matisse like to say, bet a little to win a lot. I'm, I'm not a huge proponent of the idea of, you know, betting a lot on a sure thing to make a little, I like to bet a little to win a lot. So, and I still do to this day. So I, I tried to learn as much about the exotic bets as I could. And I just, you know, I, I just messed around in those different pools and had, had very little success really. Um, learned a lot of hard lessons and, and then, you know, reached out to, I found out that, that Mike Maloney, another one of our friends here in Lexington, um, you know, found out that he existed and, and lived near me. And I reached out to him for some mentorship and, you know, started working with Mike and, and, and he helped, helped teach me a lot of good things, um, helped my career immensely. Um, but, you know, as far as, you know, I didn't have a set daily routine. I just, you know, I, I was a young kid that, you know, I would wake up and I would, hand, you know, I was constantly handicapping mm -hmm. and watching races, but I just didn't, you know, I didn't really know what it was to be a professional horse mm -hmm. player. And it took a long time to learn. I didn't know what it was until I started working with Mike on a daily basis. I didn't know mm -hmm. what that meant, really. And, and um, so, and so, you meet Mike, and you start working with Mike. And then at that point, you are spending your days at at Keeneland or at the at, at the Red Mile, and you're playing tracks, watching replays, doing handicapping. It, it, was it a seven day a week thing, or you have certain days? I guess like Monday, Tuesdays were fairly light. Sort of, sort of at your peak point, um, in terms of you know handle and and you know when we back when we had a lot of racing back then too, right? It's different times. So tell very, me a little bit, a little bit about time. that. Yeah. So so Mike, you know Mike had a private office at Keeneland, and gosh, we had we had twelve TVs in there and a and a and a betting window. So we would put you know the, we would put every track feed there was on. In, in the office and, and we would just sit there and watch races. We would take trip notes on the tracks we were, we were the most interested in and then just watch the other ones. Um, basically Wednesday through Sunday when, when the main tracks would run Monday and Tuesday, we would, you know, we would be at, be at home. Uh, and that's, you know, Monday and Tuesday, I would be making my speed figures and, entering the data into the database that we shared 
Um, you know, we would take, like I said, trip notes, track biases, figures, um, still watch, you know, and then we would watch the, watch the smaller tracks that were on TVG on, on, on TV and, and keep up with it that way. So it's, a, it was a seven day a week, probably back then, probably an 80 hour a week job of just constantly keeping up, keeping up the data and, and watching and watching races. Yeah, what do they and, say? It's a hard way to make an easy living about the gambling, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I, I would say it's a hard way to make a hard living. Yeah. I don't know what the hell is easy about it. <laughs> well, tell me about the speed figures. Um, you know, we've talked to two guys on the buyer team. Um, what made you decide it was important to make your own speed figures, given, you know, the accessibility of, of you know, buyer speed figures and other other speed figures so i started making figures almost immediately i, I began making the the queer in style figures which were just a, a single pace figure and a final time figure and then when i started working with mike he had already been making his own figures for years and so i began making figures with him and his were his were based more on the buyer scale and it was it was two pace figures, a quarter mile pace figure and a half mile pace figure, and then a final figure that was a basically very similar to a buyer figure. And the reason he did that was so <clears throat> pardon me, was so he would do figures at one or two main tracks that he followed, and they would be basically in line with what was published in the racing form, like the buyer figures. So he would, you know, he would have a set of figures for everywhere that were pretty similar that he could, you know, go off of. Um, so when I, you know, when I started working with him, then I took over and started doing a couple more tracks. So we had figures at, you know, say four or five, six tracks at a time, maybe. Um, and we did that for, years years and years so what's the process of you know like uh we've gone through how to make buyer speed figures you know working with final time and you know projecting versus going by the clock you're doing more of a you're you have you have a broader speed figure that covers you know you have a final speed figure that's akin to what buyer's doing but you're also doing speed figures for the internal fractions of a race so what's the methodology um is it a similar methodology or uh, do you have par figures for the the fractional times that you work from or is it uh, or is it somewhat different uh, i do so i've i've since sort of branched off and started making my own set of figures that now have i now have three pace figures, a quarter mile, a half mile, three quarters of a mile, a final figure for the race overall, and then a late pace figure, which is the, you know, from the pace call to the final. And I will make a variant for each one of those sections of the race. And what I did was I went and looked at each distance and each surface at each racetrack and looked at how efficiently those are run from a feet per second perspective. So I broke each distance down from feet per second and saw how efficiently they're run on average over you know, the last 10 years, say. And I translated that into 
my figures in in my beaten links adjustments in my figures and saw how that would look. So let's say, you know, at Oaklawn, a six furlong race that would go in an 80 final figure, the quarter of that race should go in like an 86 and a half should go in an 84. Like I said, the final would go in an 80 and the late pace number would go in a 78, say. So it's a little fast early, a little slow late. So that's the efficiency of six furlongs at o'clock. So that shows me what the shape of that race should look like. And so I make, I make the figures to show me, you know, one, how fast at each point of call the race goes two, how efficiently the horses go around the track. So it'll, they, they also show me what portion of the, the race was the fastest, you know, what horses made a move into the fast part of the race that'll show up in my figures what horses finished the fastest you know you know stuff like that so i you know i make a separate variant for each point of call basically and so when handicapping a race and sort of you know and obviously there's so many factors that go involved but they're just sort of sticking to this notion of speed figures what are you really looking for you know whereas in it, you know if if the buyer was your one reference, you'd be comparing an 85 to an 80. Here you have all these different points of call plus the late pace. You know, what are you looking for? What, if if we normalize everything else, what are you looking for in terms of a horse that might stand out based upon what you've done internally? Well, the the starting point for me is always what the, the shape of today's race looks like. So, you know, I like to see, what the what each contender's typical running style is you know are they typically 86 84 80 78 like we just talked about or are they typically 48 54 68 80 you know are they what's their running style you know all of that stuff and then you sort of look at each contender and and you can get a sort of a profile of what today's race shape should be from there, you can look at, you know, who fits today's shape the best. And then you can start looking at, well, who's fast enough to, to take advantage of today's race shape. So, if, you know, today's race shape is every horse in the race is, is fast early and slow late. And one horse is just faster early than the rest of them. Then that's your most likely winner probably because he's faster than them early and none of them are very fast late. They probably aren't going to catch up to you. It's a very simplistic sort of example, but that's, you know, that's sort of the way I view things. I, I think the, I think there's a lot of noise and a lot of clutter and handicapping that can be eliminated just by looking at the, the shape of today's race and, and how it is going to impact things. And even things that most people think are very important, like what surface the horse ran on last time or, you know, the trainer and the jockey. I think a lot of that can be sort of disregarded at times. It pace really is going to dictate things more than, than most people realize. So do you think, you know, the, the, the pace is the most important factor in a race? A hundred percent. I don't think it's particularly close either. I, I think it's the, the 
driving force in racing is 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 the pace of today's race. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think people get hung up a lot of what happened last time. I mean, they're called past performances for a reason, mm-hmm. and and they don't pay you know give enough credence to what today's pace scenario is. But yes, I think I think the pace scenario and in the race that you were looking at today is 100% the most important factor in handicap. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about, I know you're a big proponent of, of that sort of late pace figure, you know, tell me a little bit about how you use that. Uh, again, we've, we've done more in class and, and, and I focused much more on sort of the early pace numbers and the energy used early, but, but, but tell me a little bit more about late pace. Late pace. To me, it is, it's sort of a, a talent separator. It, it's, you know, I like to say there are a lot of horses that can run grade one pace figures early. There are very few that can run grade one late pace figures, and those are the grade one horses. It's just, it, it, it's, it's very hard to, and I will say this, it, it's not deep closers that can run grade one late pace numbers. Mm-hmm. It's it's the Knicks goes of the world. It's the American Pharaohs of the world. It's typically very fast horses early in the race, middle of the race, and late in the race. It's not deep closers. It's not on dirt at least. Turf horses, it's sort of a different thing, but it's it's talented racehorses that can do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, late pace is sort of misunderstood by a lot of people. Um and it's just, it's, it's what separates good racehorses from great racehorses. And that's, especially in today's game, you know, you make money betting on, on outliers. And, and those are typically the outliers, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how I look at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, and, and just so that I can sort of understand, like, uh, if you compare two horses with a similar figure, what you know, what, what would, does a horse have a, if the horse has a good late pace number, does it, is, if, if I compare two horses, if one has a higher late pace number, it must have a lower early pace number than the same horse who ran the same buyer or how does that, I'm not, I'm just trying to sort of think about like the the circular nature of this. Not necessarily. It all, it all does depend on energy distribution throughout the race. Yes. But it's not always horses with the same final time do not always have the same. Okay. Horses with the same final time and same late pace figures do not always have the same early pace figures mm-hmm. is what I'm getting at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could have horses that are running both run 88 finals and both run 94 late pace numbers, but one of them ran an 88 early pace number and, you know, was up on the pace and still really finished and is really tactical and is a superstar. And one of them ran a 48 early pace number and is a plotter and just happened to clunk up and, and run that late pace number and isn't a horse that you want to bet unless he gets a fast pace in front of him. So horse A that went 88, 88, 94, I would bet any day of the week, typically 48, 88, 94, that horse really needs some help. Mm-hmm. probably going to be too far back early to, to do much on most racetracks. Mm-hmm. 
if that makes sense. So there is a there is an element. You you have to be aware of what their early pace numbers are in relation to their late pace numbers. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at horses with similar final figures and similar late pace figures, but the early pace figures are vastly different, that should tell you something. The one mm-hmm. that could be closer to the pace and still finish is a better racehorse than the one that that can't. Mm-hmm. That has to be further back. Give me some examples, maybe of horses that either that you made a nice score of because because you saw the late pace and the public missed it, or or maybe ones that uh, horses that didn't have the you know that didn't have that good sustained late pace that you know were overbet and you ultimately threw out and had success with. I mean, obviously Jackie's word comes to mind. So you were <laughs> yeah, a long time critic of that uh, horse, and uh, it that's was the uh, most recent. Um, yeah, Jackie's Warrior was a fraud, and I said it multiple times and looked like a fool a lot. But, you know, the thing about those horses is they can they can get, you know, they can run in the right race multiple times in a row and, and still look brilliant time after time after time because they're just finding races with other horses that have no late pace in them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when they catch the right field, they're going to get buried. Um, so like Jackie's warrior is an example of a horse who ran on my figures. He ran like 106, 108 early pace figures, um, 102, 103, 104 final figures and like 88, 86, 82 late pace figures. I mean, he stopped. And in the breeders cup, there were, other horses that ran very similar early pace figures and they were, you know, those other horses were drawn outside of him and it was very clear he was going to get a lot of pressure. And there was other horses that had much better late pace figures and he was, you know, he was just going to get buried. So that's an example of a horse where, you know, lots of flashy wins, lots of big margins of victory, terrible late pace figures, automatic bet against for me. Um, a horse that had big late pace that didn't, you know, this is one that, that I didn't capitalize on like I should have and haunts me to this day. Um, always dreaming in the Derby was coming off that perfect trip in the Florida Derby. Mm -hmm. And I love to bet these horses because it's totally counterintuitive to the way most horse players think. Um, he had, a dream trip in Florida. Nobody thought he was any good because he had such a good setup. And he might have even had two or three good setups in a row. I can't remember. But he did what really good horses do with good setups is he finished like a great horse. You know, his late pace figures were, were legitimate grade one type late pace figures. And I liked him in that derby. And... I know you can help me with this because I'm drawing a blank on the name of the horse that came out of Arkansas that ran second to him in the Kentucky Derby. The, the deep closer Asmussen had. Uh, Arkansas Derby. Looking at Lee? Look, looking at Lee, yes. Looking at Lee. The rail was good that day at Churchill, if I remember right. And looking at Lee had a huge late pace figure on my figures and ran second at some ungodly price and that exacto was huge and i remember sitting there at the end of that derby thinking what am i doing i just totally botched this exactly but well, it, always always dreaming was a was a horse that 
you know, I think I, I think I cashed some decent horizontal bets that day, but that's an example of one that, you know, he, he sort of had hidden ability in hidden in that late pace figure. Well, he, I'm looking at it right now. So he was nine to two, always dreaming. Then looking at Lee, who you're right, came right up the rail, uh, said, you know, it's the comments are dream inside trip to the eight, eight pole. Um, uh, finished second at 33 to one and capped off a $336 exacta. So that was, uh, um, uh, that was right. I, I know you were early on a couple of years later uh, to maximum security because maximum of the, security basically is it's almost one. the same reason, right? Uh, exactly the same reason. Florida mm-hmm. Derby, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone was, was talking about the soft trip he'd had. And then, uh, um, you know, but he finished, uh, he finished with incredible vigor in that race. Exactly. So, Exactly. Um, were you on Nixco in the classic? Because he had a lot of that similar profile. Love Nixco in the classic. Mm-hmm. I love Nixco. Uh, you know, you and you and uh, Dick last week were talking about um, BCBC scores, and I was I was listening to it, and just you know, there was there was a small little world where you know, where if Clarier would have gotten up in the distaff. I had mapped out my BCBC play where I just my, – my game plan was to get get to the turf with twenty to 25,000 and play a three-by-one double with Yabir, Tarnawa, and Walton Street straight into Mexico because I just love that horse. I thought, you know, I, I didn't think there was a world where a central quality beat him. And, uh, you know, there's one little – one in 10 chance where she gets up and wins the distaff and I get up and win the BCBC, but it just didn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't going to happen. I think that double ended up paying 62 for a dollar. Uh, I couldn't have possibly had it for less than two or 3000. I don't think so. I would have been in the hunt at least. Yeah. It's uh, that, uh, you know, that the breeders cup diff distaff, of course, right. Completely <laughs> collapsed and it was a wild finishing and basically an impossible horse one. So <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I do feel like, you know, there, gosh, there were a lot of chances and a lot of head bobs could have gone different ways or a lot of different trips, um, in that race where Claire Air could have totally won that race. Right. And, uh, but, uh, anyway, that's how, uh, that's how it goes. Did the Knicks go life? It, life is good when they, uh, I mean, I know they both came out of the Breeders' Cup and, and they faced off in the Pegasus. Any, did you have any, you know, what was your thinking going into that race? I did, and that's a that's a good race to talk about. I think I, you know, I really liked Nick's go. I thought, and I actually said this in a in our group text with with some of our buddies that I didn't think life is good could beat Nick's go unless he really improved. And the reason was that that Nick's go, you know, had proven he could run very fast early and out finish life is good. And he could run, you know, when he when he was allowed to run slower early, he could he could really outfinish life is good. So life is good, on the other hand, had never shown the ability to run really fast early and still finish as fast as Nick's go. So I, in my view, you know, life is good was gonna have to improve maybe two or three lengths. And he did. He I think he probably improved three or four links. And I think Nick's go regressed a little bit. So that was a case where, you know, I was just dead wrong and my methodology didn't work at all, but it, you know, if I just, it, it's a, it's a methodology that, that I think works long-term 
But in that case, it, it didn't work. It didn't work. No, no. And that's absolutely right. We're talking about, you know, long-term advantage versus these short-run fluctuations. I do, you know, that that race is hard to evaluate because um, I, I don't know whether Nick Sco couldn't keep up with life is good. I, I find that hard to believe or whether they let him go. Rosario, while the Eclipse Award winning jockey is not, is, you know, is a average gate jockey, maybe even below average gate jockey. And so it was, it was interesting it was, I don't know whether it's interesting tactical or they just got run, run off their feet early. So I think he made the conscious decision to, to not, to let him go and not get stuck down inside on the rail. And I mm-hmm. think it really sort of hurt him. I also don't think it mattered. I think he was just no, but that's very part. dull and what he had, he wasn't winning that race anyway. But I, watching the head on replay, I think he made a, a very conscious decision to, you know, win when Jose sent into him, he just, he did not want that to be stuck between the rail and, and that three horse. I'm drawing a blank on the name of that horse. And he flopped out and, and that, that was just a, a poor decision, but you know, in the heat of the moment, things like that happen. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, uh, um, uh, it's, I, I, I have always thought Nixco was super talented, but somewhat gutless. And I don't know whether the gutless part is fair, but uh, I was actually somewhat impressed he held on the second because I just, you know, he's not been a horse that has that not been a horse that has been engaged in a fight and is, is held on well. And I don't I don't know whether there's anything to that. I mean, that, you know, the idea that, um, you know, is it the is it the number that matters or is there something to when these horses see see each other in the eye? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, but uh, uh, but I thought it was impressive. He did hold on and he did fight back to finish second because I thought he's going to be off the board when they were chasing. So, yeah, going down the backside, if you could, if you could make a bet that he was going to run last, I, I may have made that bet. He looks completely finished. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you said that basically turf dirt synth pace matters in all of these races. And so you're pretty much comfortable attacking a turf dirt or synth race. If you feel good about your figures, uh, if you feel good about your figures. Yes. Yes, I don't see any. I don't see any real difference in the surfaces, and I'm mm-hmm. completely willing to admit that I'm on a very small island with that opinion amongst horse players. But I, you know, I, as you know, I've been betting a lot of racing in Hong Kong lately, and it's the majority of the racing over there is turf racing, but they do run on dirt, and the horses will go from turf to dirt and back. They will run very similar figures on both they train on both and not much changes i mean Mm -hmm. they you know there are some horses that that clearly like one over the other but i mean you'll have horses that are just nothing but australian and european bred turf horses run on you know they call it the all weather but it's just a dirt track it's not synthetic like we have here it's just dirt and they will run the exact same figures on that that they will on the turf. Now, the turf in Hong Kong is very firm turf. As a, you know, it's not like some of the European bogs, and it's not a, you know, it's more firm than, than it is here a lot of the time. But still, I, it's turf and dirt. I mean, they mm. you know, it's different surfaces, and they handle it just the same. They handle it when it's wet dirt, muddy. They handle you know, so I. To me, the you know the, the excuses we hear a lot that they didn't handle the track and 
you know, the, you know, just a lot of the stuff we hear is just noise and it's it, a lot of things can be explained if you have a really good set of pace figures and late pace figures that, that cannot be explained otherwise, in my opinion. You know, I was going to mention this when we were talking about that always dreaming derby. You know, I still to this day don't think that that, that race result in the derby was all that aided by a bias for the exact reason that we just talked about. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, looking at my pace figures and my, you know, my late pace figures, that was a very logical result for that race. Now, mm-hmm. I didn't win. I didn't have a winning wager on it. I messed it up. But that doesn't mean it wasn't logical. Mm-hmm. Um you know, a lot of the, oh, that was bias aided or, oh, the horse didn't handle the surface. A lot of that is just people trying to explain things they can't otherwise explain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, pace and, and stuff like that explains a lot to me. And it does that on all the surfaces and, mm-hmm. and even the synthetic. You know, I, got, I had a lot of experience betting synthetic when Keeneland went to it back, you know, 10 years ago or so and, and all these tracks you know, we had that mad rush to have nothing but synthetic racing for a while in this country. And there was certainly a learning curve, but, you know, after about six months, it wasn't that different. You know, it, it, it was just the riders rode it a little differently. Mm-hmm. The paces were slower, but again, it was just the pace. It wasn't, you know, it was just, it was just a little different, mm-hmm. um, but things can be explained once you start, you know, once you are making figures and, and digging into things, it, it, it makes a little more sense that way. So you also do a lot of uh, video work. And while we haven't talked about trip handicapping yet, tell me about uh, kind of what you do, what you look for. Um, you know, you're looking for things that aren't obvious, aren't in the charts, but, but go, through, go through that process of, of watching a race, both live and then, uh, and then uh, replays. Well, most of what I'm looking for now it's different now than it was years ago. Years ago, it was, it was more position on the racetrack, how wide the horse was, what the bias on the track was that mattered a lot more back then, I think, than it does now. I think there's a lot fewer, very severe biases than there used to be. Um, Now I'm looking more at individual horses and are they in the position they should be based on their pace figures and the, and the flow of the race? So, you know, is, is this horse just way out of position based on where he should be? And, and is mm-hmm. that going to affect his chance to run his race? You know, was this horse strangled back when he should have been, you know, sent up into, into a, little, a little better spot? Um, is this jockey... You know, is this is this jockey a, a good fit for this horse riding style wise, and is that going to affect what he does on the track? You know, it, it's the stuff I'm looking for now is a little more subtle than it used to be, and it's 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 made it's made trip handicapping a little it's a little more difficult, I think, in this country now. You know, one thing it just doesn't mean as much now as it used mm-hmm. to in the states to me because it it's one, it's all over social media, you know, um, and it's the same with biases. Like I started to really discount bias a few years back when a, this guy's a very good friend of mine and he likes to play the races. 
But when he started texting me on like Tuesday afternoon about biases at Indiana Grand that he was getting off Twitter, I started thinking to myself, the age of the big bias, this just doesn't mean what it used to, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the same thing with trips. Like if you, if you can hop on Twitter 30 seconds after the race is over and 10 people you follow are talking about, oh God, that was a terrible ride on so-and-so or they look at the trip on this horse. It doesn't mean anything. It, that's going to be priced in. Mm-hmm. Now, and the field size, a lot of the dirt races in this country, the field size isn't big enough for, for, for the trips to really mean all that much anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'm focusing more on how it's affecting individual horses and, and their, you know, their running styles than, than I am you know, in terms of, of bias. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I was looking at, I was thinking about an example of what you were talking about of the fact that, you know, we're now to the point, maybe, maybe partially social media induced, maybe partially that, that everyone is so attuned to track bias where the tendency is to actually overreact. Right. And, and I think of this when take charge Brandy in 2014, won the breeders cup juvenile Phillies at um, 61, the one and wired the field, right. The immediate response was track is, you know, carrying speed, right. How could this Lucas front runner, um, you know, wire the field. And I just remember later on the card, uh, Texas Red, uh, you know, it, it was a race where, you know, Texas Red got discounted because he was deep closer. Uh, the, even the jocks started buying into the, to the, to the speed bias and they all sent. And so that, you know, that race, again, completely comes apart and, and he wins. And, uh, and you can sort of see this go in patterns, even to some extent, um, uh, you know, the, the patterns this year with the Breeders' Cup distaff going fast and then the, you know, that, that the reaction to that is the classic goes slow, right? Is that, 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 um, that uh, there's a lot quicker feedback of information than, than what was true years ago. Oh, absolutely. I, th- I think you see it a lot on the big days and I think you see it a lot at the big meets at, at Saratoga and, and to some extent Keeneland. But I think you see it a lot at Saratoga the jockeys are clearly on Twitter and are clearly getting feedback from someplace because it, like you just said, it changes almost from race to race and you can see it watching the races, how they, how they ride the racetrack. And yeah, it's, it's really, it's sort of remarkable um, how fast information gets around. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're jockey, their, their agents are all horse players and they don't want to be mm-hmm. caught. You know, they don't want to be caught in the perceived wrong part of the track. Right. So it is, right. that is, you know, that's, you know, I, I guess it's Maloney. who's always said, who's always said that, you know, you're just taking a real risk when you're, when you're handicapping based on, you know, a bias that you're you know, trying to estimate after a couple races. And so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, absolutely. and so, I, you know, it's interesting what you said about trip handicapping. So if you get a horse that was out of quote unquote position, you'll, you would, elevate that horse in part because it's not getting the proper opportunity to win a race given given this given how that horse should be running a race so that's even more subtle your your trip handicapping based on a horse's optimal running style and past performances exactly yeah and in fact i i you know i i had a really nice winner just yesterday in hong kong off this exact thing, I had a. I've been putting a little notation in my trip notes, and I'll just put X position, meaning, you know, this horse was taking out of its, you know, out of its optimal spot 
for that particular race. Um, so, you know, this horse came back yesterday um, and it was an exposition horse in its race, you know, last time. And even though it was an exposition horse, it had improved its early pace figure, its final figure, and its late pace figure, even while being out of position, which to me was just a really good sign of just an improving racehorse. And it only had three starts, which over there is pretty rare. You know, most of those are like older geldings that have run 20 times. This was like a younger sort of improving sort. And it had the best late pace in the race. So I made a bet on this. There's 22 to one horse. And he won, you know, basically for fun at 22 to one. And, but he had, he had sort of been, had a goofy jockey on him the time before that didn't really know what to do with him. And he had sort of been strangled back when he should have been up a little closer. And it, it provided a really nice, really nice betting opportunity. But, but yeah, I'm, I'm really sort of handicapping individual horses more than more than races, uh, you know, essentially, and, and where they should be in, in within the race. So let's talk about let let's sort of go from there. Uh, since you talk about you know uh, this twenty two to one shot, but we talked about always dreaming it at uh, nine to two. Um, how do you how do you take your handicapping decision? and turn it into a betting strategy? Like what that horse that you liked at 22, 22 to one, you know, is that a horse that, 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 you know, such a good number you bet to win, you try to tie it up in other things to make even a bigger score. I know you talked a lot about betting a little to make a lot. Let's let, let, let's talk about how to sort of put that into action. Right. Well, it's getting harder and harder nowadays. And this is, you know, one of the reasons why I've gravitated towards, towards Hong Kong is that, it, you know, it, it's it's easier to 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 bet more money over there without just killing your price because the liquidity is liquidity is so much better, and there there aren't the dramatic odds drops that you know. I feel like if I like that horse at twenty two to one here, I'd bet it, but you know, I'd get eight to one eventually. <laughs> um, so you know, it's. What I did yesterday was I bet the horse to win. I dutched it in some Quinellas um, with with three other horses, and it was a real Dutch. I got I was getting about thirty to one on that Dutch because mm-hmm. I threw the favorite out, and then I played some trifectas that I missed. I missed all the I missed everything but the win bet. Mm-hmm. The, the betting menu in Hong Kong is, is sort of strange. And if that horse was in, in the States, I would have certainly tried to play like doubles and pick threes and, and, and all that stuff. But, you know, what I've found over the last few years, just like looking through my records is, you know, I, I have good results in two combination bets, you know, doubles and exactas, win bets. Oddly, I have good results in the pick six, but, Anything, anything other than those, I'm, I'm really struggling. And, you know, I used to sort of make a living off trifectas and superfectas, but the, those pools have gotten so efficient that you just, you know, you can't beat those pools anymore. Um, so I'm really, really shying away from even, even betting them. It, it, it used to be probably 
50% of my handle would be in the try and super pools. And, and now it's maybe 20%, almost, almost 0% in the supers. They're hardly worth playing at all. No, I, I agree with so, that. I feel like that's one of the bigger changes over the last 10 to 15 years is how efficient all these pools, you know, wind pools always been fairly efficient, but how efficient yeah. these other pools are. And the idea that, that you could catch a horse underneath somewhere in the try and super for an explosive payout, um, you know, whether it's the computers, whether it's the lower denominations, it's just, you know, if you're going to play the try or super nowadays, it's either got to be Phyllis, you've got to have a, a, you know, a strategy about the race. Hey, this race is going to collapse. And so this yes. is the way I'm going to play it. Or, you know, you have to, you know, a pound, small number of combinations, right? Uh, yes. You know, I, I think yeah. this race is, is a straight try and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to play two or three straight tries to try to bring it home. So, yeah. And that's, you know, and, and to, to, to further answer your question about, you know, more of a, a betting philosophy, that's exactly it is to, is to bet fewer combinations and, and to bet them harder is, is to, mm. is to be more exact and, and to, sort of decreased churn and increased strike rate, mm -hmm. which is, you know, harder to do, but I think it's the right idea because, you know, the pools are so efficient that it's really the only choice you have. I mean, getting in there and just, just banging your head with the computer teams is, is probably just a recipe for disaster. So, you know, I'm just looking for very specific situations where I know I'm getting great value like that horse yesterday, you know, I would probably have priced that horse at six or eight to one and he's sitting there at 22 to one. So that's just, it was just a, a very clear betting spot. And when the, when the, when the bet is just leaping off the page to me now is when I'm trying to act, when I'm trying to, when I'm having to sort of, force myself to bet or I'm sitting there having to create a bet, those are the signs that I don't need to be making the bet. And it's really just a, now, nowadays it's just more of a waiting game than a day to day. Hey, I'm sitting in front of the TVs betting all day long game. It's more of a, I may be betting two days a week now waiting for those very specific opportunities. So I'm, I'm curious is because I think both those are factors in how the game has changed to where, you know, there are probably fewer of those, hey, I want to shove it all in kind of races that come up, right? Especially because of field size, right? And, and how much, you know, you have field size, you have the, the computers, obviously, that make the market more efficient. And then you have the, the um, you know, the, the casual fan has moved away to the casinos or to sports betting. So and then you have the second factor of the the churn bets uh, that used to be profitable, you know, used to be situations where there were, you know, the markets were, weren't efficient. And so your churn bets can be profitable. Um, and those those are no longer so. So back in the day, you know, were you, you know, making bets on most races per card that you would play or half the races, a third of the races relative to kind of what you're doing today? one or two bets, maybe a, a better or two a week. How's that changed overall? I was never a huge handle player. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I, I was never a bet every single race kind of mm -hmm. player. Um, but it, I, but you know, the main meets that I followed say 
15, 12, 15 years ago, I would probably bet half the card, maybe three quarters of the card. Um, now, now I might bet three races, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um, and my handle is probably down 60%, I would say, from even five years ago. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's vastly different. Mm-hmm. You know? It's vastly different. And it, it, and it's like, we were just talking about the way I bet is completely different. Um, you know, I used to mix around a bunch of combinations and tries and supers and, you know, the pools were so inefficient back then you could be, I mean, you could basically be half right on your opinion and, and still make money. Now you'd get killed if you did that. If you're not exactly right, you, you, you're going to lose. So yeah, it's just a totally different game right now. Yeah. Again, those are, those are now efficient markets where they didn't used to be. And that's where the high takeout just starts to bury you alive. Right. Mm-hmm. So those are, uh, those are dangerous. Uh, those are dangerous waters now. Um, uh, you know, tell me some about, uh, um, tell me about some of your, your sort of best scores. We feel everything sort of came together in terms of the way you handicapped the race and how you put that opinion into play. Well, that's a good question. Some of my best scores. It's a tricky thing because I always I reflect more on the near misses and then on the scores that I often think were my best scores. I have regrets about it's always easy to find mistakes in terms of of how you, you know, bet too little or even, you know, didn't quite necessarily have it right. It's easy to it's easy to second guess these things, but uh you know what? You're you're so right. I I could sit here and talk to you for 10 hours about ways I mess stuff up. Um, my best scores. I think, okay, I know one. I've got two, I think. There was a, there was a horse. I'm not going to remember the name of this horse. There was a, there was a pick three sequence at Belmont. No, I'm wrong. It was at Aqueduct about five years ago. And I really liked a grand motion turf horse in a it was like a little grade three stake race that was you know it was like a standout late pace horse that looked to me was going to be a great value horse was 10 or 12 to one there was a chad brown in there that i knew that they were going to make even money that i didn't like at all and so i made like a two by two by one pick three real heavy and then a two by one double and bet maybe $400 and got a six, six to one service horse in the middle leg of it to win also. And then the motion horse won the stake race and got back like 32,000. I've always been pretty proud of that bet. Hmm. And then there was a, uh, what's the name of that, the, 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 the two-year-old Philly race in the fall at Keeneland, the Alci- the Alcibiades. I think so. I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah, I think that's right. There was the Alcibiades uh, four or five years ago. That I love the the pace scenario of it. It was one of those races where I could just see the the way the race was going to unfold in my head, and 
I just uh, I just started doing figures um, at Kentucky Downs for the first time because they you know they notoriously had just terrible timing down there on the track and I, I never really had messed with making figures but I just started with that meet and I'd done figures for the first time and I had a really big figure on this two-year-old filly coming out of Kentucky Downs that Mark Cassie had that he was running back in the Alcibiades and I made you know she fit the flow of the race perfectly and was a big price and I made a very similar type bet as as that pick three bet i just played like a, a cold try and a cold super um and you know bet 250 300 bucks and got back 34 35,000 out of it something like that but they did you know they were both sort of scenarios that i could that i could 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 plan out and and see the value in that that, that both worked out really well um yeah, I'm looking here. I guess that was Heavenly Love that won it at five to one, right? And then you got a 14 to one shot in third. Is that the right right one coming out of Kentucky yeah, Downs? That seems right. Yeah, was Cox involved? He did he run like third or fourth? Or was Brad Cox in there? Yeah, he finished fourth. Uh, Sassy Sienna finished fourth at 20 to one. That's it. Right. That's so it. was yeah. Cassie over McPeak over Cassie? Cassie over McPeak yes. over Cassie. That's exactly. So that's Heavenly exactly. Love, that's Princess right. Warrior. Uh, dancing sassy sienna and um you know that uh 342 dollar for a two dollar try and uh uh um you know big super a hundred hundred plus dollar dime super so uh that was it that was it so i loved i loved the winner and mcpeak's horse was the favorite i double keyed those two and played them on top of the third fourth horse in like cold tries and cold supers. So tell me a little bit about Hong Kong. What, uh, what has sort of drawn your interest to, uh, to uh, international racing and, uh, and what they have to offer? Well, it was, it was mainly the, the shutdown of racing here when, when COVID came about. They, they kept running over there, and I was getting pretty fed up with some of the issues we have in, in the industry here in in the States. So I started, you know, watching it and, and I met with our good friend, Pat Cummins, and he gave me a crash course in Hong Kong racing over dinner one night. And I, you know, made the decision to get up early on Wednesday morning and watch some of the racing. And it's very clearly a great racing product. They've got big full fields. You know, they average probably, they probably average 12 horses a race or more. They only run two days a week, but they average 12 a race. It's a very competitive racing. The pools are unbelievably liquid. They bet you know, to last week, they bet $400 million on their two race cards mm. and average 12.6 runners per race. And then, you know, when all the tracks shut down here, I just, you know, I needed to find a way to keep betting and, and stay in business. So I started making figures. Well, at first, I should say they give you an incredible amount of data for free on their website, on the Hong Kong Jockey Club website. They just give you all this information and it's good, clean data. So I started making figures and 
um, taking trip notes, which isn't fun, by the way, with 12 to 13, 14 <laughs> horses a race. It's not fun. It's really, it really pays off because you, you actually get bad trips and horses way out of position and stuff, but it, it's not fun. Um, but it just, it really just very quickly became apparent that there's a lot of opportunity over there for, for big scores. And, you know, when I was starting to really question my ability to, to continue doing this and my ability to, you know, stay in business, basically, uh, you know, Hong Kong showed me that it's possible. It's, it's difficult. The hours are strange, um, but it, it's, it's going to pay off. It's, it's more of a long game than, than, the, than the States. Um, but it's, it, it's a tremendous racing product. It, it, it really is. I mean, there are some issues over there, but nothing like, nothing like there are here. And, and as an example, you know, making figures in this country, I would guess I see probably Gosh, I don't even know. At, at least 15 timing errors a week over all the tracks in this country. Mm-hmm. And you never once are alerted to that, you know, to the fact that there's an error by Equibase or any official, you know, by any official racing jurisdiction. They, they you know, you, they want you to pay for all this information, pay a huge sum of money. For this proprietary data and then when they screw up the info they don't tell you about it they just give you missing data bad data and that's it you know craig wolkowski on twitter will tell you about it but i don't have time to sit on twitter all day to monitor his feed and, and see what i'm getting screwed on but Earlier this season, the, I think the first meeting of the the, Hong, the new Hong Kong season, they had some timing errors. Well, they immediately issued a press release, alerted me to the fact that there were errors, corrected the errors, alerted me to the fact that they had corrected the errors. And then I, you know, I did have to go back and redo my figures, but at least I knew that there was a problem and that it had been fixed. Just a completely different world over there and how they handle problems and everything um so you know and, and then the last thing i'll say about hong kong is it, it's a growing industry handle is growing they have a plan to to continue to grow you know they 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 built a third beautiful training facility that they're going to turn into a, a third racetrack on the mainland of china that they they plan on running a third day of the week at that at that facility sometime in the near future the word is that they they're going to open up betting on the mainland of China, which isn't the case now. Which is just a, you, you talk about liquidity, you know, and, and and a huge throng of just dumb money that could be in those pools soon. So you know, one industry is growing, the other is contracting, and it, it, it's. You know, if you're a serious horse player, you're not at least thinking about betting in Hong Kong. You're not doing it right, in my opinion. Well, it's amazing to think about, you know, the, the this, you know, one of the reasons that, that U.S. racing has got so much tougher is because of, again, the few less dumb money, more computers. And yet 
Hong Kong is the, the birthplace of the computer better, right? And yet, I guess the liquidity, the tremendous liquidity um, uh, uh, over, overweighs that. Right. And their rebate structure is, is different than ours as well. They, they don't rebate every pool like we do. You know, they only rebate certain pools. They only rebate on losses. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, you're not rebated on overall handle and you're not rebated on all the pools. So they're not in the tries and the supers. They're in the win and the Quinellas and the Quinell place and mm-hmm. all those pools. And they're only rebated on losses, not overall handle. And I think that makes a huge difference. I mean, you know, those, those computer teams in this country, for the most part, are not incentivized to actually win on their bets. They're incentivized mm-hmm. to, to make markets and, and make a rebate. I think in Hong Kong, you're still incentivized to win to some extent mm-hmm. because you're only, you're only rebated on your losses. So, you know, I think that matters. And, and like you said, the, the, the liquidity is just so big and there's sort of a captive audience over there. There's, there's not other forms of gambling in a culture that loves to gamble. You know, they can mm-hmm. bet soccer and that's it. There's also their, their tote system is far more sophisticated than ours. They do have odds drops, but they tell you about it. You can see it happening. It doesn't happen in the last second. It happens over a period of time and the announcers on the television feed will talk about it. They'll say, you know, so-and-so is catching money. They highlight that horse's number on the tote board a certain way to tell you it's take, it's cut in half by 20% or 50%. So, you know, it's coming and you can, you know, if you're live in the pick three to three horses, but this other horse has got cut by 50%, you can hedge in some way if you need to, because you know it's coming. It's not coming when half the race is already being run. So it it's it's just better. I mean, I hate to say it, but it is. It's just a better product. Well, why don't we end with some quick hitters here? What's the right. do you what's the biggest fig you've ever given? Do you remember? Biggest fig I've ever given. My figures tend to be a little lower than the published figures. It somewhere in the in the high hundred and ten, you know, like hundred and eighteen, something. Do you, like that. Do you remember it, the horse? It maybe American Pharaoh's classic, mm-hmm. something. Maybe, maybe one of those chance a lot races. He ran mm-hmm. some big figures, but what was I, the, I don't know off the top of my head. Do you remember a particular? I was going to say, you know, I sort of had this as what's the best fig in terms of its its um you know, it's all its internal fractions. Do you have a, do you remember a, a particular one that you looked at and like, wow, that's everything I'd want to see in a fig in terms of late pace and overall number? Some of Nick's goes recent races were, were pretty darn good where, mm-hmm. where he hit like over a hundred at every point of call, like 104, 106, 106, 104, 104, something like that. I mean, that's about, it is, it, it is very rare that I'll have a complete pace line above triple figures for any horse, mm. especially a router. It's, it, mm. That's very rare. Nixco did it a couple times. Gunrunner, Gunrunner did it multiple times. You know what? I want to go back to the highest figure. Arrogates, Arrogates, um, 
classic, I think, was the highest mm. figure I gave. Now that I think about it, that was like 120. Mm. What uh, What's your favorite track to see live racing? Keeneland. Still your home track. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, if there was one track you could bring back from the dead, what would it be? Hollywood Park on Friday night. Mm. That was that. Did you ever get to see Friday night at Hollywood Park? I mean, I, I via simulcast. I, I never, uh, I, I never went to Hollywood Park. So oh, it was awesome. Yeah, it was that. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, your favorite small time track? River Downs. Mm. Old River Downs, right before Old the... River Downs. Yeah, it's <laughs> not not Velterra. <laughs> not, Velterra. <laughs> not Velterra. And your favorite uh, track in time? If you could go back and and bet a certain meet again, uh, what would it be? Certain meet. Um, I used to really like betting the old Turfway when they ran at night in September. Mm -hmm. Kentucky Cup. They they had the Kentucky Cup races there. It was that was yes, a good meet. But yeah, that was a good meet. Yeah, but mm -hmm. the, you know they would run you know from like six thirty to eleven during during September. I used to really enjoy betting that for for some reason. Yeah, I guess that would be it. Great. Well, anyway, look, Sean, I appreciate it. And uh, uh, it was great, uh, you know, going through all this stuff. And uh, again, uh, thanks for your insights. Thanks, Marshall. Really enjoyed it.